Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, November 7th. Amanda Borshal-Dan here with our editor, David Horowitz, and news editor, Amy Spiro. Hello to you both. Hey, Amanda. Good morning. We will start off by hearing about some inflammatory remarks made by far-right leader Bezalel Smotrich and how it's all up to incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to rein in his coalition. In the second half of the program, Amy will tell us about an overlooked chapter of Holocaust history. But first, we'll hear a word from our sponsor. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. And we're back. David, yesterday we got a little taste of the incoming coalition when religious Zionist leader Bezalel Smotrich spoke during the official memorial ceremony at the Knesset, marking 27 years since Rabin's assassination. And he asserted that essentially some of the blame for Rabin's murder lay with Israel's Shin Bet security service. So what exactly was Smotrich asserting? Well, this is complicated, and I'm going to try carefully to um, present this accurately. Um, Smotrich, at the Knesset ceremony marking 27 years since the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin by the extremist right-winger Yigal Amir, alleged that the Shin Bet had failed. Um, the responsibility for the assassination lay with the Shin Bet, which had failed in its task of protecting the Prime Minister. And he further alleged that religious Zionists... Uh, rabbis and so on, he didn't specify, but religious Zionists were not to blame for the murder. It was nothing, it was not their fault, it was nothing to do with them. And he alleged that in fact uh, the Shin Bet had uh, encouraged the murder by various uh, manipulations which were being hidden from the public. So, to first of all explain why that has caused such a storm, uh, the Shin Bet would acknowledge and in fact uh, um, issued statements via unnamed sources. Uh, it did fail. It did fail to protect Rabin from the assassin. Uh, Yigal Amir killed Yitzhak Rabin at the end of a rally and the security service uh, failed to intercept him. The Shin Bet and accepted uh, narrative, uh, which uh, Yigal Amir confirmed under investigation, was that he did act alone but drew support from rabbis and others in the religious Zionist community who he felt uh, encouraged him. He felt that he, he was encouraged by that climate uh, in, in, in that community, people in that community. And that, 
so that part of the allegation is being uh, you know roundly condemned by the by the Shin Bet, and further the uh, the notion that the Shin Bet had somehow encouraged the murder. This touches on, and we, and we've got this on the site, so you can you can read about this more carefully. Uh, a, a Shin Bet agent, uh, codenamed Champagne, who apparently uh, had had come across the uh, the idea that Yigal Amir was talking about or considering uh, killing the prime minister. Um, that's obviously what Smotrich is referring to. In closed testimony for the commission that investigated the, the, uh, the assassination, uh, it is apparently stated that uh, this agent did not take uh, um, that talk seriously, did not believe that Yigal Amir was going to do it. So if you break this down into those three things, yes, the Shin Bet failed to protect the prime minister. It argues vehemently that there was encouragement from the religious Zionist community, including rabbis in that community. It bitterly rejects the allegation that it in any way encouraged uh, the assassination. And the response to uh, Smotrich you know, has highlighted those those aspects, including, I think, notably worth saying, from Avi Dichter, who is a Likud Knesset member and a former head of the Shin Bet, who was outraged by what Smotrich had to say. Um, I was just listening on the radio shortly uh, before I came came into the office this morning, the first Shin Bet investigator to meet with Amir after the assassination, who reaffirmed Amir acted alone with the direct uh, assistance of his brother and a third individual, that he was um, extremely pleased with what he had done and um, outrage on the part of this agent that both the outgoing Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, and the incoming Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, have not uh, stridently condemned uh, Smotrich for distorting uh, what unfolded. Okay, Netanyahu didn't condemn, perhaps, the remarks, but at the same commemoration, he struck a more conciliatory tone than, than we've heard in the past. Do you see this as foretelling his position in leading his new coalition? Look, it, it is uh, the habit of, of all, all successful politicians after uh, nasty, bitter election campaigns, once the result is in, uh, for the victor to um, switch to a more magnanimous tone. Uh, and I, I, I am not surprised that we're hearing a more magnanimous tone from uh, Netanyahu. Um, the, um, the, the proof of the pudding will be how he actually governs the country, um, given that there are um, uh, agendas, his own, by the way, and those of his... Uh, coalition partners that are extremely problematic for um, uh, democratic governance of Israel. So it's nice that he sounded a little um, uh, gentler and spoke about uh, the need to get out of the trenches now and, uh, and, and unify. But uh, you know, let's see what the actions are. We've been trying to parse out the vote, and uh, we've heard that many who voted for religious Zionists have claimed that they did so as a quote-unquote security vote. But what kind of military service did Bitsala Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir complete, actually? Tell us. Well, Smotrich did, did a, f- a fairly brief term of service, and um, Ben-Gvir did no service at all. He was not drafted by the IDF because they were too concerned about um, uh, having someone in their ranks who had... Um, been as extreme in uh, acts and words as he had even as a uh, teenager. Um, and therefore, you're asking me that. So you know, why are you asking me that? Because of the likelihood at this stage that Itamar Bengvir will be placed uh, as the Minister of Public Security. It's not confirmed, in which case he'll be in charge of the police, uh, whose chief uh, blamed him, among others, for fanning the flames of internal uh, friction during the um, 
uh, deadly violence in uh, some Israeli mixed cities a year and a half ago. And Smotrich, um, scarcely believable, I would say, uh, is being touted as a potential minister of defense. I, I, I want to believe that there is no prospect whatsoever of that coming to pass. But uh, I think the military service or, or lack thereof of either of these two individuals is is you know, <laughs> somewhat problematic, though it is uh, in terms of the jobs that they're being connected to, is not the biggest problem. It's, it's their uh, approaches, uh, it's their record, it's their declared agendas that uh, should concern us if these, if these uh, two are elevated to significant positions. Now, in the normal course of politics, it seems there are often pendulum swings, right? We had President Trump, and now we have President Biden. And we've just gone from the most diverse coalition to the most hardline. Is it just a natural yin-yang, do you think? Or is there something deeper behind this? Well, I think there are there are demographic shifts in Israel, um, and I think that the, the that part of the political spectrum or the or the Israeli tribes uh, that helped reelect or return Netanyahu to power uh, last week is uh, is is growing. Uh, the election was much closer than the result shows. You know, people with. Uh, um, electoral systems in, in the United States and the United Kingdom, for example, will not have too much trouble understanding this. The popular vote is not always directly reflected in the outcome. And in this case, the popular vote was very, very close to 50-50. And yet Netanyahu has a 64-seat um, uh, coalition in a 120-member Knesset. So that's an eight-seat majority. Um, and the 56 on the other side uh, don't all like each other, to put it mildly, whereas his 64 are pretty unified. Um, he was aided by a very effective campaign, uh, by the rise of the charismatic and dangerous Itamar Ben-Gvir, and by incredible complacency and worse uh, among those who oppose him. Uh, the Arab party split uh, that actually may have drawn more Arab voters to the um, polling stations, but um, one of the parties fell below the threshold and wasted um, 130,000 plus votes, the equivalent, depending on how you calculated, of, of perhaps three seats. Uh, and Meretz and Labour famously uh, did not merge, and Meretz slipped low, below the threshold, even closer to the threshold, with 150,000 plus votes, and therefore sent another three to four seats uh, uh, to waste. Now, you can't say that, oh, otherwise it would have been 60 60 or something. You can't know uh, how people would have voted if they were given different opportunities, but they, they made. Um, uh, uh, Netanyahu's path to a coalition easier. They enlarged his majority. Okay, David, thank you for this. And obviously, we will continue to parse out the election results in the coming days and weeks. Let's go to a short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you 
can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Amy, you recently interviewed British journalist Simon Parkin, the author of The Island of Extraordinary Captives, which illustrates the lives of thousands of Jewish refugees who were held in Hutchinson Camp on the Isle of Man after fleeing Nazi Germany. First of all, tell us where is the Isle of Man on the map, just so we can place it. Uh, Sure. So the Isle of Man is basically sort of right between England and Ireland. Okay, so why were these Jews uh, arrested, essentially detained? So basically what happened is that, um, you know, in 1938-39, a lot of Jews were fleeing Germany, um, and they ended up in the UK. A lot of them had help from the UK. People came on the kinder transport, obviously, most famously. Um, And a lot of other German Jews were obviously looking for somewhere to go, and the UK felt like a safe place. And then when the war started, you know, there was such a panic uh, in the UK, and they sort of felt like, Germany was about to invade. And one thing that the government decided to do is basically round up enemy aliens and round up people they were feared would be sympathetic to the German cause. And the vast majority of German people who were in the UK at the time were, in fact, Jews and were refugees who'd come and fled because they feared Nazi Germany. Um, And that's mostly who ended up arrested. Um, So Hutchinson Camp was one of a few camps on the Isle of Man. There were also some other similar camps not on the Isle of Man, but basically the the estimated figure is about 80% of the people that the UK arrested at that time were in fact Jewish. Now, we have all heard, obviously, of the kinder transport uh, heroic tale. And how does this jibe with that at all? So, yeah, it doesn't. It's sort of wild to think about the fact that about 10,000 children came on the kinder transport. Um, My grandmother and her two sisters were among them, and they came to the UK. And then basically two years later, the British government turned around and said, actually, basically anyone over 16 was eligible to be arrested and put in these camps. They didn't take anyone under 16. And that meant that hundreds, if not thousands, of the people who were rounded up were actually teenagers who'd come on the kinder transport and the British government in this sort of panic over uh, the idea that there's the enemy living among us rounded up people who had just, they'd helped escape. Now, it should be made clear that it wasn't a jail per se, that there was more of a camp kind of feel, but obviously nobody could leave. But among this camp uh, field, there was actually a camp newspaper, right? And you brought in some clippings. You already talked about your family connection. So you brought in some clippings from one of your family members. I did. So yeah, listen, the <laughs> it's hard for me to sort of say it was more of a camp than a prison because the fact is that they were arrested and they were detained and they weren't able to be with their families and they were put behind barbed wire and they couldn't leave. So I think there's been sort of like a, a an effort to sort of make it seem, you know, we use the word internment camp, but the word concentration camp would actually apply under the definition of the term concentration camp. So I'm not here to say it was a fun time, but I will say that one of the things the book talks about uh, the most. And one of the things that's so sort of interesting about it is that they did create an atmosphere for themselves where they had lectures and sporting events and concerts and even art shows. Um, And one of the things they did was also make this newsletter 
So yeah, so I had several family members who were in Hutchinson camp. And one of them was my great grandfather, who was a congregational rabbi for many years beforehand. He was arrested on Kristallnacht, sent to a concentration camp, um, managed to escape and then came to the UK, then was arrested again and sent to Hutchinson camp. And he was one of a few rabbis there, and he was instrumental in getting um, a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll for those who were in the camp. And so this, they, they called the newsletter The Camp, not super, uh, super original, but in the, in the newsletter I can see, and it's all online, and the, this sort of very uh, interesting archival history um, and I can see what he wrote in the newsletter celebrating the arrival of the Torah scroll, calling on people in the camp to come and use it and pray and sort of cling to that piece of happiness in their own sort of despair at being separated from their families. David, had you ever heard of the story growing up? Oh, yes, because um, my uncle was uh, jailed as an enemy intern in one such camp on the Isle of Man. And the only reason my father wasn't was because he was a little younger than his brother, who was. So they're the classic story that Amy described. They fled Nazi Germany in 1937. They were beginning to you know, build their new lives in England. And then came the war. And those over, you know, Amy says the age of 16. So I'm, I was doing the maths in my head there. And I, I can understand exactly how that would have played out, that my dad was not sent off. And his slightly old, older brother was. I can only imagine that in their hearts, I want to believe this, and I think it's probably true, they knew that they were in a, in a relatively safe place. Uh, they would have understood some of the sort of geopolitical forces that were at play. And, you know, the fact that, they, that my uncle, for example, would have known that most of his family was free and safe in England uh, while he was being, you know, shall, let's be nice and say protectively jailed, you know, that that would have been at least a, a slightly more encouraging environment than would otherwise be the case. But what a terrible story, right? You fled people who are trying to mass, who are mass murdering uh, your people and you think you're safe and then you get locked away again. So at least I, I, I hope the context, you know, looking back for them, you know, that they, that they would have known, please God, it's going to be all right kind of thing. It's interesting what you said about them sort of feeling somewhat safe, like two points. One is that a lot of them were scared that Germany was about to invade essentially the Isle of Man, right? They're right in the, you know, they're sort of an easy target. And they would think, okay, well, like, you know, there was, I think there was a quote where I said, you know, the UK would think like, uh, the Germans would think like, oh, the UK did our job for us. Like they've rounded up the Jews for us and put them in a camp. But on the other hand, what you're saying is I think, you know, I discussed this with Simon, one of the reasons that the Jewish community sort of hasn't called for some sort of apology or reparations or anything like that. And the government has never really said, sorry, we did this. Um, is because that a lot of the German Jews who were in the camps and then made their lives in the UK realized after the war that, you know, they were lucky. And so, you know, even if they were angry at the UK for what it did, they were saved from the Holocaust, right? They had, most of them almost definitely had relatives who were murdered in Germany. And therefore they sort of said, okay, well, it was sort of a small price to pay, even if it wasn't acceptable and it wasn't okay and it wasn't anything like that. They just sort of got on with sure. their lives. Yeah, it's a good point. And your first point's a very good point as well. You think of what happened in places like Rhodes, where, you know, yeah, pop over from the nearest mainland and round up and send off those Jews, which is exactly what they did to the Jews of Rhodes, for example. Yeah, they were very concerned, some of them, that they would be just yeah. an easy target. Sure. Amy, David, thank you for bringing uh, this story and sharing your thoughts. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you. 